so I can stay alive and help other people to stay alive. I'm 69 years old, and I've given my life to the Commonwealth of Massachusetts children. I had to leave work and because I'm high risk, and financially is taking a toll on us, and mentally, emotionally, it's just been very hard. For our own staff, I think it's 73% of our white employees have been vaccinated, compared to about 30% of our black employees. I mean, there are two major reasons for that. One is a bit of understandable vaccine hesitancy, but you don't want to hide behind that. It's that we've got to really extend ourselves into the community to get the access to minority populations that they don't have. We want to talk to you. 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 We want to talk to you about getting vaccinated against COVID-19. Across America, the pandemic has taken the lives of more than 400,000 people. 400,000 people. With 3,100 people per day. 3,100 people per day. Dying of COVID-19 in January of 2021 alone. I urge you to please make the right choice. And if you're not able to make that choice for you, make it for that family member, for that grandmother that wants to give you a hug. This is not a joke. You have seen the numbers. You have seen how much um, families have lost loved ones. Hello and welcome narrative. I am Crystal Haynes and I'm so excited because today we are talking about vaccine equity and for folks who don't know what we do here on Common Narrative, we break down the media's impact on public perception and civic engagement across all lines of diversity and like I said our topic is vaccine equity and my esteemed guest here today, I love all of the empowered women that are on this particular call as well um, is Ava Malonish. He is um, from the Massachusetts Immigrant uh, and Refugee Association. They have a coalition um, of folks working on this particular issue, which also includes Dr. Tia Martin um, and Michelle Wu, who is, uh, you know, as you guys might know, Boston City Councilor and um, also mayoral candidate. So welcome, ladies. I appreciate you all for being here. Thanks Thank for having you. us. Thank you for having us. Well, I want to jump right in because I think this topic of vaccine equity has been one that has been going on, that has been discussed basically since the rollout, especially when it went right to an online platform. And that cut folks out of the process. And then it went, the large vaccination centers that were set up by the state were not centered in communities of color. And so I, I'm thoughtful, and Michelle, I want to start with you, um, you know, on a, a, a government leadership perspective. When you first heard about that particular setup for folks getting this life-saving vaccine, what came to mind as you as someone who knows about city planning, who knows about government structures? The heart-wrenching and infuriating part of this was that we, we, we knew what was going to happen. We had seen this so many times already throughout every other part of the pandemic that the burden, the inequities, the uh, barriers would be squarely on communities of color and specifically black and brown communities, immigrant communities. 
And so you have the efforts of, for example, the Black Boston COVID Coalition for more than a year at this point of so many community side organizations, Ava and, and others, um, knowing what to do, knowing how to reach people. And yet the state's rollout continued to cement this idea that it was going to be top down, first come, first serve, technology based. Um, and so, you know, now a couple months in, thanks to so much organizing and coordinated advocacy from community groups who had been on the ground for a long time, we've seen changes, you know, major pushback and then an adjustment, major pushback, then an adjustment. And now it's uh, much closer to the point where community groups are leading and facilitating the outreach and, and registration and, um, and, and signups. But we could have been here a lot sooner on if we had understood that this last phase to end the pandemic needed to to change the dynamic of everything that had happened before. Dr. Martin, jump in here. So only thing I'll um, add to this is uh, from a Black Boston COVID-19 coalition perspective, um, as Councilor Wu mentioned, um, we knew that this was gonna be the outcome. We knew that there was gonna be disproportionate burden and suffering in communities of color and because of our historical context and present day realities um, that that was gonna disproportionately burden black, indigenous, Latinx and, and, and people of color across the board. And so the frustrating piece um, really is that we, we didn't have to be here. You know, we were saying this back in uh, March and April when we first started um, coming across the the uh, pandemic or this the virus, and then when it was declared a pandemic, um, and we know from research and experience that the people who bear the disproportionate burden of the suffering and pain uh, during and after disasters are the same people who bear that disproportionate burden and suffering before a disaster. And so here we are with the predictable um, impact and outcomes. Um, and so from testing to vaccines, we have failed in terms of uh, developing approaches and policies that match what the best and promising practices are for how we deal with emergencies, which is why it has been such a privilege and pleasure to serve on the Black Boston COVID-19 Coalition Steering Committee, as well as the Vaccine Equity Now Coalition from a statewide perspective. So thank you um, for having us, Crystal, as well. And I just wanted, the last thing I wanna say on this point is I just want to explicitly um, acknowledge the loss and um, suffering that people are trying to navigate in the middle of all of the chaos that uh, COVID-19 has um, worsened for people. Um, I think we sometimes forget the human face of um, the suffering because it's not on 24-7 on the news, um, but there are people who have lost whole families um, in their in their uh, lineage, um, whole households gone. So I just say that so that we remember that this is about real people and people's lives. And um, my hope is that we're able to um, learn and grow and evolve in the ways that we need to from policy all the way down to how we collaborate with each other when we organize. And Ava, I want to ask you, we've had this conversation before, you know, on in terms of on the newscast, you know, Boston 25 News. But, you know, by having this online platform, by centering the first vaccination centers in specific communities, I imagine the immigrant refugee community 
felt left out and, and frankly afraid to go to these large spaces to get a vaccine. Thank you, Crystal. Um, it's a pleasure to be with you and my uh, colleagues this morning. Um, first, I also want to acknowledge that, you know, the MIRA coalition, it's a multi-ethnic, multi-racial uh, coalition with over 130 institutional members on the ground. And I want to take this opportunity to give my heartfelt thanks to our members for the heroic work that they have been doing on the ground. They are the real heroes. And like Dr. Martin said, I also want to acknowledge, you know, the loss and the pain that we all are experiencing, but in particular, the immigrant and refugee communities and also immigrants of color and those in the mixed status household families. The last four years have been horrific for the foreign born community and COVID um, aggravated the situation even more. Um, and as Dr. Martin stated, you know, we knew that this um, inequities existed and even harder for immigrant communities. Uh, but I also want to acknowledge how resilient and how strong immigrant communities have been. Um, and those in the front line experiencing the losses, experiencing the pain, but also contributing with all their might uh, to be part of the solution and to be part of what's happening in our Commonwealth and in our country. Um, so yes, it has been extremely hard uh, for the communities and especially for the meek status household families. Um, it's very hard for them uh, to deal with the very present fears of their existence uh, and how immigration status interferes uh, with all of that. So there is a lot of pain uh, and struggles in the community. Um, and this vaccine um, inequitable you know, situation makes it even harder uh, for the immigrant communities, Latinx communities and generally speaking immigrant communities. One of the big issues that has been discussed is vaccine hesitancy, especially in communities of color. And we know that there's obviously a historical, but also a contemporary context for that, a reason for that. Um, and so uh, I want, and, and I don't know, Dr. Martin, if you can frame this for folks better than I would be able to uh, frame this for folks. Um, you know, I think a lot of people mentioned the Tuskegee experiment. Some, obviously, uh, there are all a number of instances like that in history. But when we're talking about hesitancy in communities of color, to get this vaccine. And then that additional concern that came up as part of the news cycle with the Johnson & Johnson vaccine and the fear that that one had was less um, efficacious. And so then that would be put in communities of color because it would be easier and, and, and black and brown folks feeling like, well, why do we get this one that's less effective, right? Um, so I, I wonder if you can speak a little bit to, to the hesitancy piece, the historical um, uh, piece of, behind that and, and, and how we move past that. So thank you for that question, Crystal. I think um, part of the challenge is the narrative. Um, there's a narrative that the reason um, people of color, especially black and Latinx people have not gotten the vaccine is because you know the, the folks don't want it. Um, and so what I would say to that is it's more complicated than that. And in fact, um, the most recent poll, uh, a very recent poll that came out from PBS um, or NPR, excuse me, um, was very clear that when they polled across races and different political ideologies and a whole range of, of social categories, that in fact, um, 
for example, African Americans, Black people um, across the diaspora um, were the smallest group of people who said they would absolutely not get the vaccine. The smallest group of people who said they would absolutely not get the vaccine. So for me, that means that there's a flaw in the narrative we've been telling. Now, it is not to say that there aren't people in the community who have concerns, right? It is not to say um, that there isn't this historical context that has that creates questions for all of us around should I even do this? I had I had quote unquote hesitancy, and it's not because I'm afraid of vaccines. It's because that there is this historical context that goes all the way back to before we were even officially a country um, in terms of the medical infrastructure, healthcare infrastructure being built on the bodies of Black people, experiments that were done on, um, on uh, enslaved Africans, um, that not just in America uh, for the American healthcare system, but for the international healthcare system, predominantly Europe. And so if we understand the historical context and we understand that people um, are having experiences um, as of just this week that passed that were negative with the healthcare infrastructure, there's a reason why people are, ha are kind of questioning um, because there's a broken relationship um, and a broken system um, when it comes to um, people's ability to access and navigate healthcare, um, as well as what it means when that brokenness, um, uh, when the reality of racism um, is is on sits on top of that brokenness of a system that doesn't work for most of us, um, then you have that disproportionate burden of the problems with that system. The last thing I'll say on this piece is um, the other uh, miss is providing people with good quality information. Part of hesitancy is that there's um, a focus of information that is not in plain language, that is not answering the questions that people care about, um, and just talking about this hesitancy without answering people's actual questions that are causing them to have concerns about the virus. So there's a lot of misinformation that has filled the black hole that we have collectively left for folks to be able to get good quality information so they can make good quality decisions. Um, so. I think for us um, in the work that we do um, in communities and in partnership with government and in partnership with um, different organizations, that it really is important that we understand um, the narrative is more complicated than just vaccine hesitancy, um, because then we're putting the blame on individuals instead of owning our responsibility as part of the problem and um, leaving that door open so that we can also be part of the solution. Absolutely. I want to read that, uh, the, the data you just pointed to uh, on March 12th, um, the latest NPR PBS NewsHour Maris survey showed that among Republican men, 49% said they did not plan to get the shot compared to just 6% of Democratic men who said the same. And among those who said that they supported President Trump in the 2020 election, 47% said that they did not plan to get a coronavirus vaccine compared to just 10% of Biden supporters. This is running along political lines as well. And we do know that the federal rollout under the Trump administration was not stellar, to put it, uh, to put it mildly. Um, what are you hearing in community Um, so sorry, Crystal, there was a little bit of feedback. You direct, that was for me? Yes, yes. Okay. Sorry. Um, you know, I think we are still, 
we're, we're still reeling as a community from the pandemic, from the the trauma over the last four years of, of just the, um, the messaging and the attacks and just nonstop onslaught from, from um, the former federal administration and um, with, with folks continuing even after the coup at, at the Capitol and elected representatives at the federal level continuing to defend um, and to, to stand up for that kind of action. So I, you know, I think the way that it trickles down to the city level is that um, we still need to define how our recovery will, will not just be a healing experience to restore, uh, you know, what, what people had been used to before in terms of the feeling of economic activity or, or social um, connections or being able to, to just go out and kind of live your life, but to really emphasize that we need to do something very, very different in this recovery. We need to actually address the underlying structural issues that communities of color, that Black, Indigenous, people of color had been bearing long before this virus came. And, um, you know, I think especially within the Asian American community as of late, um, there have been many conversations about what that means in this moment of time, how we break cycles that we have seen again and again. And these conversations must be cross-racial, must be um outside of silos. I think that's that's the goal as we're we're breaking out of um, isolation and quarantine and and seeing more vaccination happening, uh, you know, however uneven and um, um, inequitable it has been so far as we continue to push to get through this phase, how do we make sure that we are not just rebuilding our, you know, kind of economy overall, but rebuilding community in a way that is different, that is, um, more connected and allows us to have the social infrastructure to have the conversations that we should have been having long before this pandemic. I want to play um, just a few voices in this conversation that I was able to collect um, at some of the vaccination sites and, and just have you guys react, you know, a little bit of what they were saying. So I can stay alive and help other people to stay alive. I'm 69 years old, and I've given my life to the Commonwealth of Massachusetts children. I had to leave work and because I'm high risk, and financially is taking a toll on us, and mentally, emotionally, it's just been very hard. For our own staff, I think it's 73% of our white employees have been vaccinated, compared to about 30% of our black employees. So what do you what do you think about some of those voices? And this is I I, I uh, went to a vaccination actually mobile site um, at, at a church uh, in, in in Dorchester, and then I went to a Brockton a Brockton site that was set up to get some of that sound. And and the last piece, the last voice there was from the Brockton uh, Neighborhood Health Center uh, CEO. And she spoke about, you know, in, in some of these nursing homes and things like that, like folks just are, are refusing the vaccine. I mean, what's the concern there in, in, in those spaces? Oh, you want me to jump in here? 
Yeah, anyone, anyone can jump in here. Um, so one of the one of the things is um, how we approach this, right? So again, we know that there's there's um, folks who are scared to get the vaccine, and usually with good information are able to make a good decision. Um, and we've seen that pattern over and over again. Um, so even with how we approach workers to get the vaccine, um, so we should be asking ourselves the questions, what is it that we're doing potentially that's contributing to um, the disproportionate um, response rate of our employees of color who have concerns? So if we are being honest um, with ourselves in terms of all of our collective responsibilities um, in being able to support people's access to the vaccine and to have their questions answered, um, then we'll probably see an increase in rates. And that's what we've seen um, on the ground from uh, in terms of the Black Boston COVID-19 Coalition is that um, at, people are always nervous at first and not just because they're a person of color. Um, and, and so when people get their questions answered, they're, they're, and they're respected, their humanity is respected in the process, and they're not treated as if something's wrong with them because they have questions. They actually have a right to have questions. And when that is ignored, people will take a position that is not actually aligned with, um, uh, not in line with their best interest um, uh, in some cases because of the level of disrespect that people experience. And I'm not accusing the CEO of that. What I'm saying is there are opportunities for us to um, look at our role and responsibility and how we're approaching um, employees to be able to get this vaccine. Um, and then I'll, I'll just land here with um, much of how we approach this work um, is about respecting people and their voice and their choice. And anytime you try to force something down anyone's throat without acknowledging that there are that are that there are questions and concerns, um, inevitably what we're doing is perpetuating perpetuating inequities and oppression without meaning to do so. Uh, we think we're doing the right thing, and and by virtue of doing that, we tend to. Um, uh, Per, create these outcomes that disproportionately burden people of color um, because they're going to be on the disproportionate um, receiving end of being treated differently because they have taken a position or because they have questions or concerns about something and issues in an organization. Mm. Ava or Michelle, I'll have you, you jump in here. Do you think all of the voices that need to be at the table are at the table in this conversation. Oh, let me unmute you here. There we go. All right. Uh, first, I just wanted to say that the quality of information is really key. The way we treat people is really key. The way we formulate the questions and we distribute that information is really key. Um, and it, ne it needs to be part of a narrative of inclusiveness that we are in this together. But if you know we see inequities that are so present that we're not in this together, so it's extremely important uh, for all. And you know, being an advocate for you know the immigrant population, I also am concerned uh, because there are additional barriers for you know the foreign-born population. And I want to bring one example, the issue of IDs, that the intention is not to ask for IDs. You know, um, they ask for one if you have one, but if you don't, you don't have to submit one. But the information, it's, it's not clear. 
um, the policies and the narrative, it's not clear. We are hearing from people that, you know, the very fact that if you have an ID, you need to present an ID, it's a huge barrier. And especially for the mixed status household families, um, there are over 250,000, you know, immigrants in the category of either unauthorized to work or a mixed status family that are terrified just by the notion that, you know, uh, they need to show an ID. So there is so much work that needs to be done to really make sure that the information is accurate, that the policies are, are done right. Then, you know, um, there is targeted communication and education um, and access to different languages for uh, immigrant population. And, you know, the, the clips that you just played, um, you know, it makes me really emotional. Um, the inequities are real. And, um, you know, we need to do something and time is of essence. And may I build on that, Crystal, too? Um, that, you know, we've been talking a lot about meeting people where they're at when it comes to um, providing good information and uh, um, an inclusive process that is community driven to make sure people um, have everything they need to make a decision for themselves and their family. Um, I really also want to emphasize just the physical piece of meeting people where they're at, that to remove barriers for people to actually get to where they need to be uh, for those vaccinations. And I, you know, it is, there are many other cities around the country that are leaning into walk-in uh, situations to remove barriers for even having to pre-register, to think about more um, opportunities to meet people at their homes for, for the homebound, um, thinking about whether it's deploying community trained public health professionals to go door to door um, or um, EMS uh, infrastructure. There are ways that, you know, for, for me I've, I, and, and so many, um, I think folks who have been trying to think about how to take down these barriers, it is, it is just as important to have that physical access to have in neighborhoods, in BIPOC communities, uh, black indigenous people of color um, communities, not as, as Dr. Martin was saying, not to just accept the standard narrative of, oh, well, there's nothing that can be done about it because of, um, you know, this common narrative. But are we actually making it possible for people who are working during nine to five hours or multiple jobs? Are we, you know, I think about um, MBTA workers who have been bearing a great deal of, of the burden of this pandemic, and yet Governor Baker has refused to allow a specific uh, vaccination site to open that would allow workers to um, you know, who already have priority and eligibility to actually get the vaccine because there are rules, you know, bus drivers can't have their cell phones with them during the day. There's no way to schedule appointments for them throughout the day. And so just thinking about how once someone's decided to get the vaccine, there are still so many hurdles that we're putting up for them to be act to actually physically get to where they need to go. Thank you for, oh, sorry. Go ahead, Ava. Uh, one more thing um, I also um, wanted to add to this is the very strict guidelines of who qualifies and an essential workers. It's mind boggling to hear the stories of people who have been vaccinated. And I'm very happy, you know, it has, and it is universal vaccination, but it's just amazing to see how many people have been vaccinated who are or are not essential workers. 
and many others who really are at high risk are still not vaccinated. So just targeting the definitions and the guidelines in a way that are all inclusive, I think it's very important, the complexities of the forms that people need to fill out. Uh, as Michelle was pointing out, it's really, really crucial. And I was going to um, just add that this is an example of not using the best or promising practices, right? So we know um, from decades of pandemic preparedness and pandemic uh, planning in this country, in this state, at the local levels, um, what the what what we should be doing, right? And it's not just open up mass vaccination sites. It's mass vaccination sites, it's community health centers, community clinics, and it's mobile vaccinations, it, which means two things. Sites that are um, in communities filling in the gaps of where healthcare infrastructure does not exist. And it's bringing it to um, people's homes who cannot leave their homes for lots of different reasons. Oftentimes we think about homebound people um, in, this, in the context of having a medical condition or disability that prevents them from leaving the house. And it includes people that have a lot of children in their household and we're in a pandemic, so you can't get a babysitter. It includes the off schedule folks who, to, to Councilor Wu's point, who you know are working shifts that don't allow sometimes for them to even have the flexibility to um, commit to an appointment a week in advance or um, because they don't know what their shift is gonna be. Um, so there's lots of reasons why um, we need to kind of bring it to where people are. And it's the collection of those strategies um, that allow that will allow us to have community immunity, right? However, um, we have not taken those approaches. Um, and, I'll, and I've said this before, but even um, as much as we can criticize the Trump administration, one thing they did explicitly write in their um, Operation Warp Speed plan um, in the summary for it was this exact approach. Vac mass vaccination sites, community health centers, community clinics, mobile vaccinations, and bringing it to people's homes because it's a best practice. And so the idea that we as a, as a, as a commonwealth who has been a leader on so many fronts are doing something that is different from what we know is the right thing to do. Um, and not just because it's nice to do it, but because that is the industry standard for, from an emergency management perspective and a public health perspective on what we need to be doing in order to address this pandemic and quite frankly, any other issue that we're facing. And what I mean by that is, is um, kind of targeted strategies that allow us to reach these universal goals. If we want everyone to be, as many people as possible to be vaccinated um, so that we can get over this pandemic, that means we need to have multiple strategies and multiple approaches to meet the needs of multiple people. And anytime we develop policies or programs or initiatives that do not take into consideration the different realities different communities have, we fail because we are going to inevitably exclude them, especially if their voice is not at the table. And especially if we're not going to the tables where people are in order to hear their concerns. And I'll stop there. I think that, that this conversation has been continuing on the federal level as well. And um, Massachusetts Senator Ed Markey held a, a COVID round table um, a little while back. And so I wanted to play, I mean, this was back in February, um, and I wanted to play some sound from that.
We cannot turn our backs on these communities uh, that continue to shoulder the burden of this pandemic. If anybody can walk into Brockton and convince Cape Verdean and Haitian uh, patients, community residents to consider taking the vaccine, that's Brockton Neighborhood Health Center, just a, a few feet, a few miles down the road from me right now. We want lots more vaccines going out. We want everybody to be able to get those vaccines. So more money into vaccines and more money into distribution generally. But the next level down is with, we are articulating in this bill, it has to go to community health centers because community health centers are where we get it done. We've mapped out social systems to see where are the leaks and where is the capacity. This hasn't been done. Look at the collective care and mutual aid that has emerged in the midst of this tsunami of hurt. Yes. The, the, the human infrastructure, the care economy, mm -hmm. you know, when we thought it was improbable, that is where the resiliency of community has come with this. Ladies, I want I want you all to sort of respond to that sound. Of course, we heard Senator Markey, uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren, Representative, um, uh, uh, Nika Elgardo, and then we, of course, Congresswoman Ayanna Presley. Um, uh, that was the the last voice. If you are listening at home, um, and so I want you all to respond to some of this because it seems like there's a conversation, obviously, on the federal and state level to affect some of this change. And it had started back in February when we saw the vaccine program rollout. I'll open up <laughs> just, okay, so, just to warm it up here with this question. Um, I, I think I, I'm, <laughs> I was just uh, feeling an incredible amount of relief at our uh, delegation and, and, and those voices. And I, I wish there were, um, had been a sooner uh, incorporation of so many of those insights and, and strategies. And um, as we've been talking about all morning, I think for me, the, what came to mind right away is that, we can't let up, right? That it seems right now, uh, we, obviously there's still a long way to go in terms of reaching herd immunity and full vaccinations. I was just checking the the latest stats earlier this morning that about 35% of Bostonians um, 16 years and older have been vaccinated as of the last uh, major batch of data. Um, and so e even that is a, a huge, a huge place uh, different than than where we were, a, a, you know, a couple months ago, uh, still more to go. But even after we are pushing through vaccination, this same uh, sense of coordination, urgency, focus and intentionality has to continue. It will be in the the impacts that are still tied to the pandemic that are, um, you know, not measurable by epidemiologists around um, the mental health impacts, the trauma that that families have experienced, the burden that's going to continue on our schools and uh, so many who have been affected and bearing the burden of, of, of care infrastructure um, sort of pulled out, out from under them um, throughout the course of the pandemic. And we, we just have to keep building and not let up once it feels like, okay, you know, restaurants and indoor dining are safe to, in-person in events are safe to go to again. Um, we have to stay in this mindset that there's so much more still uh, to do and to make sure that we are rebuilding um, in an equitable way. Uh, I'll just add that um, 
we are in a strange time right now. And what I mean by that is there are all of these, um, there are all of these ways that we're framing problems um, that make individuals on the ground, communities, the problem instead of the um, instead of the uh, systems and structures and healthcare and kind of all of the different parts, um, government and all of the different roles that we all play um, in um, when we're trying to work through difficult issues, complex issues. Um, and so what I find fascinating right now is um, this opportunity that we have to really learn and to really look at all of the things that we have been able to um, make happen that a year ago we said that's not possible. We would never be able to do that. And by vert, and there are some um, of those lessons that um, we've learned that highlight even further inequities. And I'll be give a concrete example. So we've always told said that students have to be in the classroom and that's the only way that they can learn. Um, and so we've gone through a year of virtual learning, um, remote learning. Now here's the rub. Because we did not build the proper infrastructure to make sure that all students and their parents have access to good quality um, internet, um, then we found ourselves in a situation where there were students who could not get access to the very education that's supposed to help them to uh, navigate getting out of um, the, the struggles that some of their families are dealing with, right? We say education is a pathway out of poverty. Um, now there's some debates about that uh, uh, um, uh, on the nerdy side of the house. However, the reality is it's one, an important pathway. Um, and so when we make policy decisions and we don't take into consideration the benefits and the burdens and who's going to bear each of those things or who's going to have access to each of those things, we end up with in these kinds of situations. I say all of that to say um, that, that it is my hope that we truly collectively um, at the local level and at the state level um, deconstruct some of the um, the decisions that we've made, the impacts that they've had on communities so that we can really learn from them, um, that we do an after action report um, about um, this situation that centers equity um, in the middle of it so that we can um, make sure that we are moving towards this um, this type of resilience that isn't just about how do people cope and adapt with all of the problems of our society and, and the, the worsening of them when disasters and emergencies happen, but um, how do we make sure that we are transforming the root causes of the experiences that people are having? Um, and we can't do that if we are too afraid to look at um, the mistakes that we've made so that we don't make them again, as well as the things that we did that were innovative um, that um, we can leverage as tools, um, as long as we have certain considerations in mind to make sure that, again, that they are um, uh, that those strategies and approaches align with what the real needs in communities are and the realities in communities so that everyone can benefit from them and leverage the different things that make sense for people and their families. Um, if I may, I just wanted to bring us back for a moment to the importance of building the right narrative and, you know, the narrative of togetherness. 
um, coordination, collectiveness, inclusiveness, I think it's key. We can see the communities who have suffered the most as a problem to be fixed. We need to see that as, um, as a failure to bringing the, to building the right systems, to, uh, to invest in, you know, in our communities. And I cannot emphasize that enough that the communities need to be at the table. Um, Congresswoman Presley says it many times, and we love quoting her, that those close to the pain should be close to the power. And the voices of the most vulnerable should be at the table when these policy recommendations have been made. And it's one of the things that I'm really proud of Dr. Martin's work and many other colleagues that I'm privileged to work with, that in February we got together and we formed the Equity Now Coalition that has over 30 uh, hardworking on-the-ground organizations that stand for social justice, racial justice, immigrant justice, and health um, equity. And the concern that we share together is that we are still not learning from our failures. And this coalition's mission is coming together, recommending solutions. Um, you know, we all are tired of just um, pointing out what's not working. I think it's time to get the best lessons learned, those promising practices, and coming together with concrete solutions moving forward. I want to acknowledge the incredible amount of work that has been done at the local, federal, and state level. I mean, the, the administration has put an enormous amount of time and, and, and endless hours and efforts and and resources um, at the federal level as well at the local level. Um, enormous work has been done and I want to acknowledge that it has been powerful but the narrative of you know bringing the voices of those who we who are being disproportionately affected need to be at the table they need to have a say and one of the things with the vaccine now coalition is that we work with them for them and with them and not just you know making decisions for them I want to ask you all, you know, as you've been watching the news reporting on this, um, you know, do you think that the media is being fair in its representation of the facts? And I'm thoughtful of this in the context for myself is that I was on the Mashpee Wampanoag um, lands earlier this week, and they are really crushing it when it comes to this vaccine rollout. Um, so much so where the vac they have surplus vaccine where they're vaccinating all the Mashpee teachers in that district and starting on Friday, the Falmouth teachers. Um, and they're sharing it with community and you're hearing stories, albeit you know here and there very sparingly that in native in Native American communities, they're actually have done a, such a good job in connecting to the folks that are on the reservation on the tribal lands that they're actually helping the surrounding communities. And I'm thinking about that community model that already exists in that space and how it worked effectively for them. And so they were able to reach out to the surrounding communities and apply it there. And so my question to all of you is, do you think that the media tells enough of, of success stories in this space and also talks more, frankly enough about what needs to be done here and, and challenges the folks that need to be challenged um, on a public scale. I, I, I will say that I think 
um, it's a mixed bag, right? So, um, you know, the ability to to tell to do storytelling well um, requires us to have done homework, to have a certain level of understanding of context, um, and there are some media outlets and some and all the way down to reporters who have done that legwork. And so they have a deeper understanding of the inequities that already existed of oppression of those those types of things and so the narrative that they tell is a little bit different from someone who has not done that research and so it's not just about the individual reporters it's also about what is it that media outlets are expecting from their reporters and are they provided the space to be able to get the kind of knowledge it takes to tell accurate narratives or and let me reframe from accurate to um, more complete narratives. Um, and, and what I mean by that is um, if, if you think that um, it, the, 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 if your worldview ultimately is that um, people of color are victim, helpless victims and they need to be saved, right? Then the stories that you tell about those communities will be about their, them being victims and how all these other people are coming to save them, as opposed to all the work that's happening and, and has been happening in communities to save themselves in spite of other folks not making that investment in those communities. Um, and so I would say from a media perspective, there's always room to be do better and be better. And I think as part of this pandemic, what I've noticed kind of more towards the, the later, um, the last several months is that there has been a better job. I would say that there has been a better job of telling some of those stories. Um, my hope is that um, that does that that it's not an anomaly, right? That it, we continue to tell these more sophisticated um, stories around that that match the complexity of real of the real world of real communities of of, of their strength and their challenges um, in the ways that um, we in different parts of um, society, whether it's government, business, nonprofits, community, um, can uh, play a role in being able to and have um, and play a role in being able to be a part of the pro of the problem and part of the solution. Um, and so how do we um, get more intentional about telling um, the full range of stories and all of the different um, roles in being in the problem and the solutions and all stuff. And I, you know, I totally agree um, in terms of the narrative and how do we present the stories. Um, I do want to, you know, and people like you, Crystal, who have been covering this issue and your colleagues, uh, I want to thank them for their attention for their consistent consistency in covering, but also um, it's our responsibility also as an advocate, how we talk about the issues and making sure that the powerful stories are being told and getting those stories uh, to the media and not talking about immigrants only as victims or as, you know, this poor segment of the population that, you know, um, has to survive. But also we need to tell that story of immigrants thriving and immigrants being in the front lines and they're being part of the solution and not as a problem that needs to be fixed immediately. So it is also up to us to get those wonderful and powerful stories uh, in the media and um, you know, speak to that. So going back to the narrative, it's extremely important that there is a collectiveness um, and very strategically working together and telling the powerful stories of, resi of resilience um, and strength um, and the resourceful communities that we represent. I'll, I'll, I'll add, um, I agree completely with, with what's been said, especially about the, the need for context and tying what is happening now with failures from 
long before um, generational you know, since the founding of this country and and the role of um, policy in driving the the issues that we're facing today and the urgency for for moving forward on racial justice I think that has at least again in this moment has become more infused in coverage on on all issues and and must continue um, and then I just wanted to reflect that you know in in this current um, sort of point in time with social media there there are so many more um, people stepping up in addition to just sort of you know mainstream media or even um, official you know professional reporters and, and journalists and it's been amazing to watch uh, that kind of uh, sort of grassroots information sharing, building coalition work happening um, that I, I think we'll continue to see the impacts long after this pandemic is over as well. And one more um, piece um, that I wanted to mention on this point is just the fact that we're all humans and as part of our human condition, we're flawed and amazingly wonderful all at the same time. Um, and so, um, and that goes for our reporters, our brothers and sisters who are reporters too. Um, and all of that to say that we all have, um, we all have been infected with ideas about who people and communities are supposed to be and how they're supposed to be. And if we own the fact that we're flawed human beings and that those ideas um, are in us, whether we believe them or not, um, we have a whole catalog of those ideas because we get exposed to them all the time and they come out in ways that are very unexpected, including how we write stories. And so in that context, making sure that we are um, uh, aware of that and managing it. And that means getting closer to communities and um, uh, owning mistakes when they happen, um, reframing um, deficit-based um, things, advocating. Um, there are times where sometimes editors don't have the same context that you had as a reporter who was close to the situation and they tweak things in ways that actually take away from the narrative. And I know some, it's hard and we have to figure out what we're willing to risk in, this, in all the different spaces we're in. Um, and um, there's a there's an opportunity for us to um, uh, speak out um, in those moments when we know that the narrative is being pulled in a direction um, that is harmful to people and harmful to communities. And then the last few minutes that we have, I want to talk about vaccine passports, uh, vaccination passports, because that has come up recently as more folks have been vaccinated in uh, the state and in the country. And now there's a conversation around it being, uh, you know, a barrier to access for folks, you know, if you not if you already had disproportionate access to the vaccine, you're going to have disproportionate access to whatever this passport may or may not look like. And I know Governor Baker has said we're not here, we're not there yet in this state, and, and that he didn't want to create a barrier to already, you know, to make this job uh, more difficult than it already is in getting everyone vaccinated. But I, I wonder, in an equity lens, when looking through the back, looking at vaccine passports through an equity lens, what are the challenges there if companies, if countries that folks want to travel to start implementing this? Go for it, Dr. Martin. <laughs> Go for it. I'm trying not to jump out there um, and, and make sure I'm creating space for other voices because I know how I get excited I get about these issues. So um, I'll just quickly say that 
um, you kind of said all of the important points, Crystal, right? That um, there is a reality that if we head down that road, we've, we create yet another way to marginalize people. Um, and so we have to decide for ourselves um, in this moment how we're going to prevent that from happening because we can see it on the horizon. And if we can see it on the horizon, it is all of our collective faults if we end up in that space um, when, we, when we blink and we arrive in the future and we have um, we ha we have made decisions that um, that that these vaccine passports um, can make or break someone's livelihood. Um, and so we have to be honest about the on the groundwork that needs to happen to ensure equitable access to vaccines. Um, and um, we have to make a decision uh, collectively about um, what are the different ways that we can approach making sure um, that folks are able to um, go into spaces um, and folks be comfortable with the idea that, um, uh, or not be comfortable, but that we are clear about who has been vaccinated. And that's a that's not an easy um, decision or, or approach um, that we have to navigate. Um, it's going to be some healthy conflict that needs to happen for us to come up with solutions that make the most sense. Um, what I'll say concretely here is that um, from a public health perspective, um, it they're not necessarily um, mutually exclusive, right? That we can um, uh, have approaches that don't require people to have a vaccine passport. We know people, there's barriers to just having an ID um, and, and for immigrants, but also for any poor communities, for communities of color who are poor, um, you know, for, for in communities who are middle-class um, uh, that are communities of color, but there's transportation disadvantage. Um, and so there are these realities um, of once you start to add another layer of barriers to people's livelihoods, like whether or not you can come to work or whether or not you can um, participate in certain types of activities, um, you begin to further stratify our society and create more problems in people's lives. I totally agree with that approach. Uh, we're not there yet. And um, the inequities need to be addressed immediately. And once we get to a phase that, you know, it's universal vaccine and the barriers have been eliminated, then we can talk about, you know, uh, the passport at that point. But the way things are right now, uh, it's another added barrier in the process and especially the timing of it. It's important to document it uh, so people have, you know, their um, their cards when they, you know, they have been vaccinated. Uh, but I don't think we're there yet to, you know, to add the, um, the policy for a passport vaccine at a time that inequities are so present and so real. Yeah, and, and I think this feeds right into the conversation we've been having about putting the burden on individuals rather than the system to take full responsibility, government policy to take full responsibility that we must get to the point where this is not an issue, right? Where where there has been access, where we've we've done the work of reaching every community and meeting people where they're at. And this is also a moment where we are still seeing very active efforts through policy to exclude communities from voting, right, from uh, from getting access to jobs and when, when it feels like the pie is smaller as, as we're coming out of the recovery and um, this, we just can't have no excuses when it comes to um, 
who's able to share in the uh, prosperity of our of our society, especially as we are looking to grow and come back and and transform our systems uh, through this recovery. All right, ladies, we're going to have to leave the conversation there. But my goodness. What a great conversation. Thank you so much for your time. Ava Malona for the Massachusetts Immigrant and Refugee Association, Dr. Atia Martin and Michelle Wu, Boston City Councilor and uh, mayoral candidate. Thank you so much for your time. And just so if folks who may have missed this conversation, folks who maybe caught it at the last 10 minutes, we uh, have streamed it to the Common Narrative uh, Facebook page, the Common Narrative YouTube, and of course, follow us on all the social media common narrative media and set those notifications because we are going to be having some tremendous conversations as we uh, go out through the year every Sunday right here from 12 to one o'clock. And I'm going to play us out with a uh, the, a recent PSA that went out with uh, Boston uh, elected leadership and appointed leadership. So I'm Crystal Haynes. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. We want to talk to 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 you about getting vaccinated against COVID-19. Across America, the pandemic has taken the lives of more than 400,000 people. 400,000 people. With 3,100 people per day. 3,100 people per day. Dying of COVID-19 in January of 2021 alone. In our community, the virus has cut the average life expectancy for black people by two years. And Latinos by three years. Eight out of 10 COVID-19 deaths reported in the U.S. have been adults age 65 and older. It's up to us. It's up to us. It's up to us. It's up to us to stop the spread. And protect our families. It's up to us. It's up to us. It's up to us to protect our grandmothers, our grandfathers, and our families. We can keep our communities safe and healthy by getting vaccinated. By getting vaccinated. By getting vaccinated. We've got to keep our community safe and healthy by getting vaccinated. I was vaccinated a couple of weeks ago and it was safe and secure, and you should do it too. When the vaccine is available to me, I am going to take it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. When it's my turn, I will do it. As soon as I can, I will do it. And you should do it too. Please contact your local healthcare provider or visit www.mass.gov for more information about getting vaccinated. That's www.mass.gov for more information about getting vaccinated. Get vaccinated now because it's, it's up to us. us.